Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're about to begin the gate of unity and faith. The last few classes we learned the introduction, which Alter Rebbe calls education. And we mentioned that it appears that Alter Rebbe had a thought to place this part of Tanya, to place it first. And he wrestled with this. And although he made a decision to place this part of Tanya as a second part of Tanya, but nevertheless, he still left in the introduction, he left two or three times, he refers to the first part of Tanya as, as will be explained in the future meaning as if this was the first part of the Tanya and that was the second part of the Tanya. What is the difference between the second part of Tanya and the first part of Tanya? The second part of Tanya is based on the idea of understanding, of understanding, understanding godliness. Not believing in the unity of God, but understanding the unity of God. Engaging your mind, using your mind and understanding in a way that it makes sense to you. And this is a level of love, which he explained in the introduction. It's called a secondary level of love, a childish level of love, in comparison to the adult level of love. The adult level of love is the love of the tzaddik, whose love is totally natural, while the childish level of love refers to the level of love which is based on intellect. And although the adult level of love, the level of love of the tzaddik is, of course, superior... Nevertheless, he says, and this is the whole point of his introduction, there is an advantage of the second level of love. What is the advantage of the lower level of love, of the childish level of love? That it's eternal, it's permanent. So much so that even when the tzaddik inevitably experiences his fall, his downfall, because in order to get from one level to the next, in order to make a leap forward, you must take a step back. When he steps back and he loses that level, that natural level of love, he reverts back to the childish level of love. Educate the child according to his way. Even when he grows older and he already achieves the higher level, the adult level of love, this level of love will remain because he'll need it, he'll depend on it. Because there will be moments in his growth, in his life growth, in his life movements that he will have to, he will lose that higher level of love. And the only thing that will sustain him during those periods, during those lulls, will be the childish level of love, which is the level of love that's based on intellect, the level of love that he calls almost a manufactured love, a love which is forced, which almost goes against, you have to force yourself by using your mind, because at all times, at all places, every one of us is in control of his mind. You can control your mind. You can think about something, even if you don't enjoy it or you don't like it, but you can force yourself to think about something, and when you think and meditate and reflect on something, that will develop, help you develop a certain level of love, a certain feeling, and that, that's enough to sustain you. That's enough to motivate you to do the right thing. Even in those moments when it's almost a manufactured love because it's not natural. You have to force yourself. So there is an advantage over the childish level because it's something that you can always recreate at all times and all places. Whatever level in life you're at, you can always recreate it. And therefore, here he emphasizes that advantage. That's why in the introduction he keeps in his original thought. He hints at the fact that his thoughts were, and he wrestled with this, 
And although he decided otherwise, but nevertheless, he shows us that there is a room to place this part of Tanya first, because there is a superiority and advantage to the level of love that he's discussing in this part of Tanya, a level of love that's based on understanding and using a logical mind to understand the unity of God, versus the level of love that he discusses in the first part of Tanya, which is, the whole foundation of the first part of Tanya is, that deep down, every Jew has a tzaddik inside of him. That every Jew has a core, an essential, natural love to God. A hidden love. But it's innate, it's inherent. Because every Jew has a divine essence, a divine spark inside of them. And although we can't access it, and it's not on a conscious level, but nevertheless, that remains our core, that remains our essence. And as he pointed out in chapter 18 of the first part, that in the moment of truth, that core, that essence emerges. Every Jew has a moment of truth when that essence comes out. And therefore, using your mind, you use your mind to meditate and reflect on the fact that in the moment of truth, what is your core? What is your essence? What is your true nature? Your true nature is like the nature of the tzaddik. And therefore, you can, you can evoke that natural love. You can reveal that natural love. So it's two different types of love. There we're talking about revealing the Pintaliyid, revealing that core, that essence, that divine essence inside of us. So the mind is just used as a tool in order to reveal that natural love that every Jew has to God. That's the foundation of the first part of the Tanya. That being Jewish, acting like a Jew, thinking like a Jew, speaking like a Jew, is something that's very dear and near to every Jew. Because deep down there's a hidden tzaddik inside of us. That is our Pintaliyid. And you just have to tap into that, access it, reveal that fact. And live, live your life accordingly. And that's the reason why ultimately the Alter Rebbe chose that part of Tanya to be the first part of Tanya. Because that is the foundation of a Jew's life. The fact that we have something divine, something essential at our very core and essence. And that is the foundation. But nevertheless, there is a superiority to the level of love that he's going to develop and he's going to discuss in the second part of Tanya which is a love which is based on human meditation and reflection, using your mind, understanding, in a way that makes sense to you, understanding the unity of God. And this brings to mind the famous uh, saying of the explanation of the Shalah. We learned earlier, the Alter Rebbe said that both in the first part of Tanya and the second part of Tanya, that these two parts of Tanya are based on the teachings of my teacher's from books and, and from writers. And the books refers to the books of the Shalah, Rabbi Shaya Levi Horowitz, who lived before the Alter Rabbi, before Baal Shem Tov, and who actually moved to Israel. We saw his grave, buried right next to the Maimonides, and also the Maral of Prague. So the Shalah, it's a very famous passage in the Shalah. We asked the question on the song that the Jewish people sang when they crossed the Sea of Reeds, a song that we say, recite every day, every morning in prayer and service. And it says, the verse says, states the following, This is my God, and I will beautify Him. The God of my Father, and I will elevate God. It doesn't make sense. Which comes first? Elokei Avi, the God of my fathers, or my God? First comes the God of my fathers. That's the faith that we inherit, the faith that we are 
that's transmitted to us, tradition that's handed down from parent to child, grandparents to grandchildren. So that's the God of my father. That comes first. Then comes Elokei, my God. Chronologically. Why does the verse put place first, Zekeli, this is my God, before Elokei Avi, the God of my fathers? And his classical response is, he says, because there's a big difference between faith that's inherited, faith that you receive traditionally from your parents and your grandparents, a tradition that you received in your home that you respect, versus when God becomes my God. Like I have discovered God. When you become like Abraham and Sarah, you're the first. Abraham had no father. Abraham had no grandfather. Abraham was the first. That's why every convert is called the child of Abraham and Sarah. There's no parents, there's no grandparents, there's no community. You are the first. You discover God as if you are the first person that, that discovered God. It becomes your own. There's a tremendous advantage to that. And it's also hinted in the verse itself. When Zekeli, when God is my God, Van Veyu, I will beautify you. Because it's something that I love. It's beautiful. It becomes part of me. When God is the God of my father, Aromemena comes from the word in Hebrew, he's above me. It's distant from me. It's something I respect. It's tradition. It's, it's respectful. But it's distant. It's not me. It's not, it hasn't really touched me. Aromemena. It's distant from me. Ze means I'm pointing with my finger. When God becomes Ze, I have a direct relationship with God. I understand God. My mind absorbs it, my mind grasps it, my mind has a relationship with God, and I point my finger directly, I'm looking at God, Zed, directly, Zed, this, you are my God. It's personal, I've internalized. Then, Anveyu, I will beautify it. And he says, Anveyu is made up of two words. Ani, Vahu. I and God become one. One word. Ani, Vahu. I and Him become one word. And that's the beauty of that relationship. So that relationship is the ultimate. The goal is, what comes first chronologically? The God of my father. But what's more precious? What's more precious is Zekeli. When a person engages his mind and a person understands, develops a deep understanding and understands the unity of God using your mind, then you develop something very precious personal relationship with God. So in a certain sense, this level of love is superior to the level of love that you inherit, that's inherent, that's innate, that's natural, that you're born with, that pintle that core, that essence, that divine spark, because that's something that's there. All you have to do is just reveal it. But this is something that you've developed using your mind, your way of thinking, until, some, until it makes sense to you, until you get excited about it. You discover God. It becomes your God. It's your discovery. It's your God. You have a personal relationship. So when we're learning in the introduction to this part of Tanya, the Rebbe leaves in the introduction the thought that there is a place, there is a strong argument that this part of Tanya should really be the first part of Tanya. Because there's something superior about this level of love over the level of love that he discusses and is the foundation of the first part of Tanya. So now we begin... Page 835. The theme of this treatise, as the Rebbe Shlita notes, as stated in its subtitle, let us understand at least in a small measure the statement of the Zohar 
that Shema Yisrael is Yehuda, Eliyah, higher level unity, and Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuso, Ve'olam Va'ed, is Yehuda Tata'ah, lower level unity. For Va'ed equals Echad through the substitution and therefore the descent of letters as stated in the Zohar. The letters Echad means one, and Va'ed's, which, also, which literally means forever, but the letters are interchangeable. And the Zohar explains because the Aleph and the Vav are connecting letters. In the Hebrew language, V is a connecting letter. Aleph is a connecting letter. So therefore, since they're in the same family of letters, the letters are interchangeable. Ches and Ayin. Ches and Ayin are connected because they're both guttural letters. Ches and Ayin. They both involve the guttural part. Aleph, Ches, Hey, Ayin. You have to use your guttural. You have to use your throat. So since different letters use different parts of the mouth, like Bez, Vav, Mem, Pe, use the lips. The Aleph, Ches, Hey, Ayin use the, the, the throat. So therefore, they're in the same family. They're in the same family. So therefore, they're interchangeable. And of course, they both have the Dalit, Echad and Va'ed. So therefore, they're interchangeable. So, in other words, that Shema Yisrael and Baruch Shem are really referring to two different levels of unity. We talk of the higher level of unity of God and the lower level of unity. When we say the letters are interchangeable, they're almost like a translation of a letter. They're a lower level of the same letter. When the letter is projected on the lower level. So echa literally means one. The meaning is clear in its clearest sense. So that's referring to the higher level of unity. Va'ed, which is interchangeable. When you change the letters, it's like a lower level. You get the same idea, but on a lower level. That's the lower level of unity. The Zohar discusses, speaks of the two levels of unity, the higher level of unity and a lower level of unity. The Chod is actually stands for Aleph. Aleph stands for one, one God. Ches stands for the seven heavens and the earth. And Dalit stands for the four corners of the earth, space. And space and time are connected. And uh, the question is, we talk about unity, there's a higher level of unity which is called Yachid. Yachid means, like you say, a ben Yachid, bat Yachida, there's only one. One is just the beginning, one followed by two. In, when you count in Hebrew, echad, sheni, shlishi, echad doesn't mean that it can't be a second. It follows. If you want to say the only one, exclusive, you don't say echad. You say Yachid. Yachidum Yuchad, the one and only exclusive, in a category by itself. So the question is, why doesn't, why don't, if the Torah is trying to emphasize the unity of God, it should have said, Hashem Yachid, God is exclusive, God is the only one. Instead we say, Hashem Echad, which actually, the word itself shows that there's seven heavens and there's one earth and there's four dimensions and, and you know, we also have the dimension of time. And nevertheless, it's all one. But all of that will be discussed. Say Hashem Echad, 
which actually, the word itself shows that there's seven heavens and there's one earth and there's four dimensions and, and you know, we also have the dimension of time. And nevertheless, it's all one. But all of that will be discussed. Okay, we begin chapter one. It is written, Know this day and take it unto your heart that Hashem is the mighty and just Lord in the heavens above and upon the earth below. There is none other. The verse, if understood simplistically, seems to declare that there are no other gods dwelling in heaven or earth. This requires explanation. For would it occur to you that there is a God dwelling in the waters beneath the sea? So that it is necessary to caution so strongly and negate this thought by saying that one should, quote, take it unto your heart and come to the realization that this is indeed not so. So the verse says, if you take the verse literally, you should know. It's not enough to know it, but you have to take it to heart. That God is God. That God is God in heaven. In addition, God is not only God in heaven, but He's also God, the same God on earth. And then He adds, there's none other. What's He coming to add? That you may think, okay, first I would think, so God is the only God in heaven. But maybe in this world, there's another God. The philosophers believe that God is totally remote. God is totally removed from this world. God is the absolute ultimate being, but God is totally remote from, removed from this world. And so the verse continues, God is not only God in heaven, but God is also God here on earth. And then he adds, oh, well, you might think, yes, maybe God is God in heaven and God is God here on earth, but maybe there's another God lurking behind, underneath the earth and underneath the ocean. So he has to tell us there's no other God. In other words, the Jews believe in monotheism. We believe that there's only one God. We don't believe in dualism. We don't believe that there are two gods. We don't believe in polytheism. We believe in one God. I mean, this is elementary. This is basic. This is the foundation of Jewish belief. We believe that there's only one God. But why does the verse have to say that this is something that you should know? You should know today. What does it mean you should know today? Hayoim also means it should be to you as clear as day. You should know it clearly, as clear as day, as, as daylight. It should be so clear to you. And it's not enough that you know it, but you have to really take it to your heart. That God is God in heaven above and in the earth below, and there's no other God but Him. So, obviously, the verse, and this is something that we repeat every, every morning in prayer, that every single day we have to think about this and take it to heart. Every single day you have to think about it again. And you have to take it to heart again. That there's only one God in the heavens above and in the earth below, and there's no other God. There's no other God lurking under the ocean. He's not coming to tell us that there's only one God. He's coming to tell us something much more profound. In other words, monotheism isn't that there's only the belief that there's only one God and not two gods. That's basic. Monotheism means something much, much deeper. Something that's perhaps counterintuitive. And in order to truly, truly understand it, he says every single day, you have to know it. Every single day you have to think about it again. And it has to become clear to you like day. 
and you have to take it to heart that God is God in the heaven above in the earth below and there's none other but God what could that possibly mean? it is written forever O Hashem your word stands firm in the heavens the Baal Shem Tov of blessed memory has explained this concept at length and made it widely known that this means that your word which you ordered for example let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters these very words and letters through which the heavens were created stand firmly forever within the firmament of heaven and are forever clothed within all the heavens to give them life note of the Rebbe Shlita, the fact that these words were uttered thousands of years ago presents no problem as it is written and the word of our Lord shall stand firm forever and as it is likewise written and his words live and stand firm forever this refers not only to those creations such as the heavenly firmament which enjoy a permanent existence but also to those creatures which perish as individuals with only their species continuing to exist in all instances the divine life force which created a particular creature must constantly be vested within it incessantly creating and vivifying it anew just as it ceaselessly, ceaselessly recreates the heavenly firmament I shall soon be explained okay so he quotes the Baal Shem Tov. actually this is a midrash the midrash says that the words the words with which God created the, the world, the universe, these words remain within the heaven and constantly sustain the heaven. Nevertheless, the Alter Rebbe quotes the Baal Shem Tov, and one reason that's given is because just like the Midrash, the Midrash was put together by Rabbi Oshia, and they start the Medrash with Pasach Rabbi Oishia. Rabbi Oishia started. They put his name right in the beginning to commemorate him forever. That became his eternal memorialization. To commemorate his, 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 his deed, that, that's the opening line of the Medrash. The same thing as Rashi. Rashi, the greatest Jewish teacher, wanted to memorialize his father. So his very opening words in Rashi in the Torah is, Amar Rabbi Yitzchak. That was his father. Rashi is Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. Shlomo, the son of Yitzchak. He wanted to memorialize his father. So the Baalter Rebbe wanted to memorialize the Baal Shem Tev, the founder of the Hasidic movement, who was born on the eight, Monday, the 18th day of Elul, in the year 1696. And the second day of creation on Monday, that's when God uttered, one of the ten utterances, that there should be a heaven, there should be a rakia. So to memorialize the Baal Shem Tov, he quotes, the, he quotes this in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. And the Rebbe explains that when he says, the Baal Shem Tov explained, he means that the Baal Shem Tov explained this concept at length. There's a lot of Midrashim, but no one paid attention to this Midrash. No one realized the significance of this Midrash. The Baal Shem Tov publicized the Midrash. The Baal Shem Tov went to town with the Midrash. The Baal Shem Tov highlighted this Medrash. This became the whole foundation of the Hasidic philosophy. This became a whole foundation of a whole way of life, of a whole way of looking at reality. This be the Medrash became a living Medrash. Not just a nice Medrash, the words of God are in the heaven. Whatever that means. The Baal Shem Tov explained it 
publicized it, brought it, made it come come to life, brought it brought it to life, and therefore he gives the credit to the Balshemtiv, as if the Balshemtiv really explained it, as if the Balshemtiv owns owns this medrash, because by the time the Balshemtiv explained this medrash, he looked at this medrash was a whole new medrash, with a whole new meaning, profound, significant meaning. And what does the Medrash say? The Medrash says that the actual words, when it says God created the world, the universe, with His words, these words, the Hebrew words, the Hebrew letters, are almost are the building blocks of creation. They are, they are the divine energy with which God creates the world. A human analogy is our own life. Our whole conscious universe is all based on words. There is nothing but words. Words, concepts, definitions. Our whole world is based on words. Remove words, <laughs> our whole world collapses. Our whole frame of reference, time, space, backwards, forwards, past, present, future, it's all concepts. It's all words. Without words, our whole known universe, our whole conscious universe, ceases to exist. What's the word for something in Hebrew? Davar. Very good. What does davar mean? Dibur, words. Objects are words. It's all words. The whole world as we know it, the whole frame of reference as we know it, because we think in words and concepts. Otherwise, our whole universe would collapse. That's in the human level. So too, this is taken from the divine level. The whole universe derives from God speaking, God communicating. When God speaks, God uttered, the ten utterances, He created the universe. The Hebrew words are the building blocks of the universe. The shape of the letter, the meaning of the letter. Every letter represents a different divine energy. And God creates the universe with these divine energies. And these divine energies, God continues to speak. It's not that God has spoken 5,765 years ago. God is continuing to speak as we speak, this very moment. These very same words, God is constantly saying, there should be a heaven, there should be an earth. And it's these words, there should be heaven, these Hebrew words create the heaven. These words that are in the Torah actually create the heaven. That's why these words are so holy. The Hebrew language is a holy language because they're divine energies. One letter in the Torah is missing or one letter is off, it can disturb or destroy a whole world because the letters themselves are divine energies. And these divine energies, God creates the world with these divine energies. And these words, in other words, just like God is forever, the words that he's speaking are also forever. The word of God is forever. The words with which God created the universe, those words are constantly and continuously, God is continuously and constantly speaking. And these words give life to the universe, not only to the heavens, but to all creatures. What if the creative letters were too hard, even for an instant, God forgive, 
and return to their source, that source being the degree of godliness from whence they emanate, all the heavens would become naught and absolute nothingness, and it would be as though they had never existed at all, exactly as before the utterance, but there be a firmament. Before that divine utterance, the firmament did not exist at all. Were the letters that constitute the divine utterance to depart from the firmament, it would revert to the state of never having existed at all. The Altar Rebbe now concludes that this is true not only of the firmament, but of all created beings. So it's not just that God spoke and the world came into being, but the very substance of everything that exists is none other than the divine energy, the divine speech. And what would happen if God would stop speaking? Then the world would cease to exist. The heavens would cease to exist. If God wants to destroy the universe, what does He have to do? Does He need a flood? Does He need an earthquake? He does nothing. He stops speaking. And the universe reverts back to its natural state, which is nothing. Non-existence. It has no existence. It's not a separate entity. The whole universe exists by the divine energy. If God removes the divine energy, then it reverts back to nothing. All that remains, all that exists, all that is, is God and His speech and the divine energy. Nothing else exists. So everything really is divine. Its very substance is divine because it has no other existence. It has no other being. If it exists at all, it's only. Because at this very moment, God is bringing it into existence. The divine energy, God's speech, is creating it, sustaining it, and bringing it into existence. So the very substance of the world, the very substance of everything that exists, is really godliness. The godly energy. There is nothing else. Everything is made up of the same substance whether it's an amoeba, whether it's a grain of sand, or whether it's Einstein, or whether it's an angel, or whether it's a note of music, or whether it's a molecule, Ex- an atom, anything that exists, anything, it's all made up of the same substance, which is the, the divine energy. There is nothing else. And so it is with all created things, and all the upper and lower worlds, and even this physical earth and the realm of the completely inanimate, even immobile things that show no sign of animation or spirituality, not even the degree of animation observed in the process of growth in the vegetative world. Even this extremely low life form constantly harbors within it the divine life force that brought it into being. If the letters of the ten utterances by which the earth was created during the six days of creation were to depart from it, but for an instant, God forbid, it would revert to naught and absolute nothingness, exactly as before the six days of creation. Everything is really alive. Everything has a soul. Everything has a life force. Even what appears to us to be, to be inert, to be dead, is truly alive. Now, this is something that uh, we can relate to a little better after what modern, modern physics has taught us. 
that this whole world, as we see it, is really, it's really an illusion. We see a solid table, right? We place our cup on the table, you bang your head against the table, it feels quite solid. But the truth is, what is the table? It's energy, vibrating energy, pulsating energy. And if you look for anything solid in the energy, you can't find it. The atom is 99.9% empty. It's just a swirling energy field that gives us the appearance of solidity. So it's not the way it appears to be. It's not, the, it's not what it seems to be. The stone appears to be a stone, inert, fragmented, material, physical. But the truth is, as Einstein said, matter is really energy. It's nothing more than energy. It's just a form of energy that appears to us to be something solid and inert. So the substance of everything that exists is really divine. The divine energy that's constantly creating the world each and every moment. The act of creation is not a one-time event that happened 5,764 years ago. The act of creation is an ongoing thing that happens each and every moment. The world is continue, constantly being recreated. The world is dynamic. The world is in constant flux. The world is undergoing a process. Each and every moment the world is undergoing the process of creation. As if brand new. As if from the source. It's being recreated. Fresh. New. The world appears to be old. Tired. Stale. But every moment is brand new. Every moment the world is being recreated. It's a constant process. We don't see that process. To us the world appears to be frozen. That's where the ego comes in. The ego gives us a very distorted view on life, on reality. The ego freezes reality. Everything appears to be solid, dead, external. The soul, however, sees the inner. The soul sees the truth. And the soul sees how the world is... It's dynamic, it's vibrant, it's a process, constantly being recreated by the divine energy. The divine energy is at every moment transforming itself into the table, into that cup of water, into you, into I, into everything that exists. Time, space, concepts, everything. Music, beauty, art, everything. The substance of everything, everything that exists. From the heavens, from the spiritual realms, from the angels, higher levels of consciousness, peak experiences to the simplest, the mundane, everything is really made up of the same substance. The angel to this cup of water is all made up of the same substance, which is the divine energy. To the, to the physicist, there's no difference between a book, a table, sand, it's all made up of the same nu nuclei, and it's all atoms. The differences are only from our perspective. But if you go to the, on the inside, on the atomic level, it's really all made up of the same atoms. And that's what the Torah is telling us. That God's words, with which God creates the world, the building blocks of creation, the divine energy, as symbolized by the letters and the words, the ten utterances with which God created the world, the ten Hebrew utterances, 
these words are dynamic, are vibrant. God is constantly speaking these words. These very same words are constantly speaking and creating and bringing, bringing us into existence. Shape, creating us, sustaining us, giving us each our shape, our form, our uniqueness. But the truth is that the underlying reality of everything is really the substance of everything. Our substance is truly Kadesh. So this, this revolutionizes your whole perspective on the world. You want to get close to God? You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't need mystical experiences, otherworldly experiences. Just look at yourself. You are in touch with the most vibrant, with the most dynamic, the most powerful, divine experience possible. The fact that you exist is the greatest divine miracle and experience. You want to feel intimate with God? You don't need some otherworldly mystical experience. The fact that you exist, just your being, the fact that this cup of water exists, the fact that anything exists, that is really the most astonishing, the most mind-boggling miracle. Act of God. Constant act of God. Not just an act of God. The very substance of everything that exists is godly. So where is God? Everywhere. All around me, within me, within this glass of water, within the table. Every... God is everywhere. God is all around me. There's no space empty of God. It takes on a new meaning. Because the substance of everything that exists is all godliness. It may appear to be something else, but in essence, it's truly godly because it's nothing other than the, than the divine energy. What is this cup of water? It's the divine energy that takes the form of water. When you drink the cup of water, you make a blessing. What's the blessing you make? That everything is made with your words. That it's your word that's sustaining, creating and sustaining this water. It's giving it its, its properties. And, it's, and therefore this water is nourishing. This water nourishes me. This water has all these health properties. It's the divine spark in the water that's really nourishing me and sustaining When you eat food, it's really the divine spark in the food that's nourishing me and sustaining me. When you do business, not just doing business, there's a divine spark. Every dollar bill that I have is connected to me. There's a divine spark in that dollar. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. When I do business in a kosher way and I use the money for kosher things and I give tzedakah, I am connecting and I'm revealing that divine spark. So suddenly, a Jew's purpose in life, a Jew's perspective on this world, this world becomes a very friendly place. The Jew unlike other religions and mysticism that look down in this world as being some illusion or some very hostile alien place, the Jew looks at this world and sees a godly world, a divine world. Not a world that I have to be afraid of, a world that I have to run away from, escape from, escape to some mosque, 
monastery, escape to some Tibetan mountain. But the world becomes a place which, which I can take on, I can engage in, and I can connect with the divine spark in everything that I touch and come in contact with. So this is why he says, This is really the teaching of the Baal This is the foundation, the revolution of the Hasidic movement. Because the Baal took this idea, it's first mentioned in the Arizal, and even earlier than that in the Midrash, like all secrets of the Torah that are all found in the Midrash. But the Baal really explained it and made this a, a foundation for a whole different way of life where a Jew can engage in the world and see and discover and connect with the divine spark in, every, in all of your physical activities. The act of eating becomes holy. The act of telling a story. Even the act of telling a good, a good joke. Everything becomes utilized. Everything becomes a way to connect. And now he quotes the Arizal. This thought was expressed by the Arizal when he said that even within that which appears to be utterly inanimate matter, such as stones or earth or water, there is a soul and spiritual life force. That is, example, although they evince no demonstrable form of animation within them, are nevertheless enclosed the letters of speech from the ten utterances which give life and existence to an inanimate matter, enabling it to come into being out of the naught and nothing, nothingness that preceded the six days of creation. The ten utterances usher inanimate matter into a state of existence, in contrast to its former state of non-being, prior to the six days of creation. Thus, the letters of the ten utterances which cause inanimate matter to be created are its soul, and life force. So that result says that everything has a soul, even the stones, even earth, water. Everything has a soul, a life force, an energy. You don't see the energy, but it has an energy. Even the stone. And uh, it's, it's not the soul like we have a soul. We have a soul that gives us, that gives us energy. But when God forbid the soul leaves, the body is still intact. The soul that Arizal is discussing is the soul that creates the stone and the soul that sustains the stone. If you remove the soul, there is no stone. Like if you re remove the atoms, there's, no, there's nothing physical. It's just a manifestation. Energy is matter. Matter is energy. It's just a physical manifestation. The energy transforms itself into matter, into the solid world that, that we live and experience. But the truth is, its substance, its essence, is pure energy. That doesn't change. So everything in that sense has a soul. Everything is really the divine energy. And if you remove the divine energy, it's not something external. The divine energy creates the stone. The divine energy is the stone. If you remove the divine energy, there's nothing. It's not that something is missing. It's missing a spice. It's missing an ingredient. It's missing icing on the cake. It's lifeless. No, it ceases to exist. So what is, what is the stone, really? It's really the energy. The divine energy. There is nothing else. The stone has no independent existence. 
It's not like the body and the soul. The body has an independent existence. The soul makes the body interesting. Gives it life, gives it energy, gives it the ability to see or to hear. But God forbid, when the soul departs the body, the body doesn't disappear. The body has an existence of its own for a short time. But here we're talking about something much deeper. The soul that creates it, the energy that creates it, the divine energy that, that creates it, brings it into existence and sustains it. And if you remove it, there is nothing. Because there is nothing else. What is the stone, if not the energy, the divine energy? That's the substance of the stone. You don't see it, but that's the substance. What's the substance of everything? The cup of water. It's the divine energy. What is our substance? Let's get personal here. The divine energy. So we are the, our substance is divine. We are intimate with God. We are close to God. As close as you can get. Our whole being, our whole existence is nothing more than the divine energy that is creating us each and every moment. It's a process that's continuous. The whole world is being recreated each and every moment, brand new. They say the difference between the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechoi, the author of the Zohar, which is like the Bible of Jewish mysticism, and the Arizal, who's like the last word in Jewish mysticism, the Einstein of Jewish mysticism, who revolutionized Jewish mysticism, and the Baal Shem Tov, who popularized, Pirish Baal Shem Tov. he explained, he publicized, he went to town, he educated every last Jew. The difference between the three is the analogy is given that there is a very wise man who comes to the people and says, tells them, I heard from a very reliable source, I heard that in some distant country there's this unbelievable king. And he starts describing to them the greatness of the king. He's never seen the king, he's never been to his palace, he's never seen his, his royalty and his majesty. But he heard, and he describes it. And with great wonder and with great... Then you have, many years later, another person comes along and he says, I have seen the king. I was there. And he starts describing what he has seen, the majesty of the king and the royalty of the king and his grandeur. And then the third person comes along and says, Come with me. I'll show you. You'll see for yourself. You'll see the king. That's the difference, the three stages Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, the author of the Zohar, which was the first revelation, which was something otherworldly, out of this world. He was describing realities that was beyond human conception, as if he was describing something that he heard about, something that's remote, that's distant, something that's so removed from us, divine reality. The Arizal was like the one who says, I have seen and describes what he has seen. And he describes it in great detail. The infinite grandeur and complexity and, and the, the, of the spiritual realm, of the divine realm. The Baal Shem Tov grabbed every Jew by the hand and said, come with me. I'm going to show you godliness. I'm not taking you to heaven. I'm not going to take you on some mystical experience, some otherworldly experience, meditative experience. I'm going to show you, you want to see God? Godliness? It's right here. Right inside of you. 
It's right in front of you. It's a cup of water. It's right there. In front of your nose. It's all around you. The fact that you exist. The fact that we're here. Every day, every moment, every experience, everything that exists is the divine. Is the divine energy. So you want to look for God? You don't have to look far. You don't have to climb ladders. It's right here inside of you. It's all around you. So he brought every Jew, took every Jew by the hand and brought him face to face with the king. You can see the grandeur of the king of his royalty right before your eyes. And you can have a private, intimate appointment with the king. So this is the foundation of the Hasidic philosophy. That the divine energy is constantly recreating the world. That creation is something that's ongoing, it's dynamic. Change is dynamic. And that's why a person should never feel stuck in a road, trapped by your habits, by your limitations. All you have to do is tap in to that constant, ever-changing, dynamic, vibrant energy that's constantly in flux. Every moment is brand new. Every moment you can recreate yourself. Every moment you can just tap into that dynamic energy and you can flow with the energy and you can change. You can transform. As long as you get beyond your ego. Because your ego just freezes you. Your ego just creates this rigidity, this distance, this the God of my father and he's removed from me. You know, it's tradition, but I'm not going to take it personally. That's the ego getting in the way. I don't want to lose my objectivity. And the Baal taught, don't be afraid to lose your objectivity. Because you're not detached. You can't be detached. It's your very core, it's your very every moment. You are, your whole substance, your whole being, your whole existence is nothing but godliness. So how can you be indifferent? How could you be cold? How could you be detached, removed, objective? Don't be afraid to lose your objectivity. It should transform you. Whatever you do, do with the fire of your soul, 100%. Because that's your substance, 100%. Give it your all. You love a fellow Jew, 101%. You're praying, pour your heart and soul into the prayer. You're doing a mitzvah, pour your whole heart into the mitzvah. Do it beautifully. You're studying Torah, Pour your whole mind into the Torah. Without any hesitation, without any reservation. Because it's your whole being, it's your essence, it's your substance. Don't be afraid. Hashem to lit a fire on the Jew. He taught them to dance, to be ecstatic, to be wholehearted, to be sincere, to be genuine. He loved the simple Jew because the Jew, the simple Jew, whatever the simple Jew did was 100%. No reservations, no calculate, no holding back. Not afraid to be intimate, not afraid to be 100%. To get close. And the challenge is for the intellectuals, who by nature are reserved, detached, and are afraid to lose their objectivity, their cool to detached. And this is the foundation of the Hasidic philosophy. To help you overcome that fear. Don't be afraid to lose everything. It's your essence. Your whole substance is God in you. That's you. That's who you are. It permeates your whole being through and through. 100%. Because there is nothing else. That is everything you have. It's really God. And now, he addresses the question. 
how can we say that everything that exists is created with the Hebrew language, with the ten utterances? And we know the ten utterances are very limited. We find the word for heaven, Rakia, Reish, Kuf, Yud, Aleph, which we understand that each letter represents a divine energy and these energies and the combination of these energies are the building blocks with which God is constantly creating the heavens and everything that the heavens contain in them, all the spiritual realms. But where do you find in the ten utterances the word for stone? No, but Evan. You don't find in the ten utterances the word Evan. Evan in Hebrew, Evan. Where do you find Evan? Darizal says that everything has a soul, even the stone has a soul. The word, the Hebrew word Evan, God creates the stone with the Hebrew name Evan. The Hebrew letters are the letters with which God creates the whole universe. So stone has a Hebrew name, Evan. And these are the letters and the combination of the letters, these are the, the combination of the divine energies with which God creates the stone, with the characteristics of the stone and the nature of the stone. Where do you find in the ten utterances the word, the name Evan? Now although the name Evan is not mentioned in the ten utterances recorded in the Torah, how then can we say that the letters of the ten utterances are enclosed within a stone? Nevertheless, nevertheless, life force flows through the stone and the ten utterances by means of combinations and substitutions of their letters, whereby an olive, for example, may take the place of a hay. Since both letters are articulated by the same organ of speech, and so on. Okay, so this gets into Kabbalistic. Just read one more paragraph. Transposed in the 231 gates, either in direct or reverse order, as is explained in Sefer Yetzirah. Okay. The Sefer Yetzirah is one of the first Kabbalistic books that was ever written. It's attributed to Abraham, greatest Kabbalist. Ever. And in it he describes how God creates the world with the letters. And he describes that there are many different ways to combine letters. For example, there are combinations. Let's say you have a, um, a few words in sequence. You can take one letter from one word, combine it with another letter from another word, combined with another letter from another word, and that makes a new word. So even though it's not overt, you don't see it, but if you take one letter from here and one letter from here, you can create a new word. Or there are substitutions for letters. There are many ways to substitute letters. We find in the Talmud. There are many diff different olive bases. There's one alphabet, for example, it's called Atbash. It's the reverse. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, during World War II, there were... Some Jews who use these, these codes that no one could figure out because it was something so far-fetched. It's the base, and Adbash means you reverse, like the Aleph corresponds, parallels the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. At, Aleph becomes, parallels tough. Bez parallels the second letter, parallels second to the last letter. So you substitute one letter for the next. So even though superficially there's no connection between the Aleph and the Tuf, they're two different letters, two opposite letters, this is the beginning, this is the end, but nevertheless there is a connection this way that the Aleph could be substituted with the Tuf and the base could be substituted with the Shin. And then there is what the, he describes in the book of formation 
as the 231 gates. The 231 gates is based on a mathematical formula that if you have a certain amount of points and you try to make lines from one point to the next, how many lines could you make? If you have two, two points, you can make one line, right? If you have three points, how many lines could you make? A three. Four. How many lines can you make? Six. If you have 22, 22 lines, if you, if you figure out mathematically, if you have 22 points, if you have a circle and you have 22 points, and you want to make one line from each point to all the other points, 231. So translate that into the Hebrew letters. If you take the Hebrew letters and you want to make one line, you can't duplicate a line. It has to be a new line from one point to another point, to all the other points. If you take the Aleph, for example, and you want to connect it with all the other letters. So you have 231 combination of two letters. This is what is the book of the Kabbalah called the gates, 231 gates with which you can enter. 231 different combinations of two letters. And he says in direct or reverse order. Each one of these, let's say Aleph Beis, could be Beis Aleph. So together is um, 462 combinations. A letter could be changed if it's part of that combination. You can change it. So letters are interchangeable. The Hebrew alphabet, there's so many ways you can change the letters, the numerical value of the letter. If they're from the same, same family, like we learned earlier, the va'ed, the, the vav, and, and the aleph, because they're both letters, connective letters. So they're from the same family, so you can change it. Hey and ayin, because they're both from the throat, the same family. And Abbash, the different olive bases that we have traditionally. And there are many others. So there's so many ways. Every Hebrew letter... So yes, there's a, a finite, limited amount of words that you find in the ten utterances. You find the word for heaven, for the big items that God created. The general items. You don't find clearly the word heaven. But it doesn't matter, because in there, you, there is heaven by way of transmutation, by substitution, by combinations. By, I'm sure you can find the Aleph and the Beis and the Nun, you can combine them. And numerical values, it's there. Yes. Everything that exists has a Hebrew word. It's all in there. You could find everything. Not probably, definitely. Otherwise it couldn't exist. You have all the letters. You have all the letters. You know how many combinations you have? 22 letters? Combinations you can make? But in addition to that, that's just the beginning. You have 231 backwards and forwards. That's 462. And then that's just one way of calculating letters. So you have so many ways of substituting letters. And this is not just a game. It's not just a clever way of substituting a letter. This is just a symptom. Because the truth is that the, 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 the divine energy does have the ability to project itself in a little different format that you don't see the connection to the origin. It's almost like taking letters, taking very clear letters, precise letters, and then scrambling the letters. And suddenly you look at you look and you don't see you don't see the connection. But the letters originated from a very clear word. And then it got scrambled. So everything that exists in this world, there are things in this world that are not kosher, that are not holy. 
How did they originate from the Torah, from the ten utterances with which, with which God created the world, from the ten holy utterances? Everything has to have a letter. Everything has to have a divine spark, otherwise it couldn't exist. But, but an object that's not holy is like a letter that got scrambled. So you don't see the connection to its source. You don't see the divine connection. You look at a pig, you don't see the divine connection. You see a non-kosher animal with repulsive tendencies. You look at a predatory animal, you see a predatory animal. You look at something repulsive. You don't see the connection to its divine source. But the truth is everything has a connection. Everything has letters. But the letters became scrambled by way of transmutation and permutation and numerical value. It just... It means it lessens. It lessened. The original energy became lessened. When, when you say something is a numerical value, it's because it's not a direct, it's like a translation. It's like a lower level. It's like you're bringing it down to a lower level. When you translate it, and when you bring it down to numerical value, I mean, it's not the letter itself. It's the way the letter descends a little. The way descend, the letter is screened a little. And then the more you distance yourself from the origin where it originated from transmutation and changing it, it lessens, it diminishes that's why from heaven you end up with a stone something which has no which is inanimate which is dead, appears dead because the energy in it is very hidden the energy is there, its whole substance its whole essence is the divine energy but it's hidden, you look at a stone you just see a stone, an inert, dead material object so there's no question that the Hebrew language is unique um, you know, God creates the world of the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language has so much meaning, inner meaning, layers of meaning, levels of meaning, that it could only be because it's different than, than any other language. Any other language is man-made. Hebrew is divine. It's the divine language. It's the energy, the building blocks with which God creates creation. Just an example. What's the Hebrew name for father? What's the Hebrew name for mother? Aim. What's the numerical value of Av? Three. What's the numerical value for Aim? Mother? 41. What's 41 and 3? 44. What's the numerical value of Dam? 44. What's man called in Hebrew? Adam. What's that? Adam is Aleph Dam. Because the Talmud says if there are three partners, every child is made up of three partners, the mother, the father, and Hashem. The mother and the father give you the dam. Av and aim give you the 44, the blood, the biological, the physical. Who gives you your soul? Aleph, the one, Hashem. And that becomes the name of man, Adam. So you see how many layers of meaning it has. So many, so many deep layers of meaning. The mitzvah to give a half a coin. Every Jew has to give a half a coin. It says, V'nasnu. V'nasnu, backwards and forwards. If you give, if you give, it will come back. If you give tzedakah, it will come back. The same thing is, very few words like that in the Torah. V'hiko. V'hiko is the same thing. You read it backwards and forwards. If you hit someone, it's going to come back to hit you. However you treat someone else, that's how it will come back to you. Nothing else. So the Hebrew, the more you get into the Hebrew, and the more you study the Hebrew, and the numerical values, and the connections, and every letter, 
it blows your mind. I mean, this can't, this can't be man-made. It, it's so, it's so many layers and connected. Uh, so many. It, it just, it's, it's a divine language. It's un- because it's, it's, it's divine. It reflects the divine truth. You know, when we say a numerical value, we're not just playing games. Okay, let's add numbers. It means that there's an inherent connection, and that inherent connection is expressed. And there's a reason why the connection is expressed by a numerical value, because it means it's not such an obvious connection. It means it's a secondary connection. And when, when you substitute a letter, or, or you go through the 20, 231 gates, these are all different ways which only the divine knows how to figure it out. But everything in this world has a Hebrew letter or a Hebrew word. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.